So how has the journey been through our book of the books? If, as I say, if you're a visitor, we've been reading this as a congregation this week, and certainly every day I've had conversations with different people in the congregation about where they are, how they're finding it, um, the interesting things they're finding, the dilemmas they're finding, uh, to consternation at some places, to encouragements in other places. And I guess there's many of us who go to different things. If you go to, some of us go to the Greenbelt Arts Festival, and if you come back at the end of a festival like that and you share what you've had at the festival, people nearly go to different festivals. I went to, no, I didn't go there. I went to, and I didn't even see that because I was at, everybody comes back with something else. And so I think it will be as we read through the New Testament like this. As I've tried to... um, I don't watch too much golf, but uh, I watch a little bit, but um, not as much as soccer. But um, uh, you find that nowadays, and I've played many of the courses that they play on my computer, and actually they're the same shot, actually, that I have on my computer. Um, And you've got all these bits where they can now show you how the green goes up and the green goes to here. And, And in some ways, as I've read through Luke this week, there have been certain bits of the terrain that have literally lifted themselves. Some bits have probably went past and it didn't really strike me, but other bits really came out of the page and um, it's been fascinating to see what those particular things are. For instance, um, what I read at the start, do not be afraid. Um, That struck me and strikes me as you actually go through the entire gospel according to Luke because do not be afraid appears in all kinds of places. And as I said on Wednesday night, it appears in the places where you send to him, you've got to be kidding me on. This is really frightening. What do you mean do not be afraid? Um, and that was one of the first things that struck me. And then the second thing, because of Jonathan's sermon last week probably, because you come to some of this with different things in your mind, and for us we're finished Hosea, and we're now into what we're going to do is we're going to through Lent preach what comes up in our readings. And, um, and so you're kind of uh, skimming through it. And I went, oh, that's really interesting considering that Jonathan was on repentance last week. Because when we get into uh, chapter 3, not that there's any chapters in the one we're reading. Uh, the passage um, that uh, Stephen read without me knowing that he was right at home as he was reading some of this stuff. You find there in verse 8 of that, and we're back to verses, are we not? I think it's verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That really leapt out at me. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I kind of, I suppose, read the rest of the gospel with maybe that as my jumping off part. What is this gospel telling us about what John the Baptist talks about in this idea of repentance? What is the fruit of repentance and how do we see that in the things that Jesus did and in the things that Jesus taught? The first thing I guess we've got to do then, and we were having some discussion about it. Well, no, let me, first of all, let me go back one, actually, to the start of this reading, which uh, Stephen did very manfully there. Um, All those uh, places, um, Lysanias and Abilene and all that kind of stuff. That first verse... I'm convinced that that first verse is one of the least used verses in the New Testament. I'm convinced that when it comes to daily reading notes, they cut it out. And I'm convinced when it comes to readings in churches, they cut it out. They think, oh, there's a few place names there. It's really just a wee bit of history there. We'll start as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. 
But when I was reading the commentaries, they were saying this is a crucial little verse. I came to it and I went, is that how they start at chapter 2? And you find that Luke is kind of given as historical places that set the words that John the Baptist and Jesus were speaking into. And so if you read the commentaries, as I do and get paid for, then you will find that these are telling us exactly what the times were like when John the Baptist appeared in the scene. Though Rome had ruled for a hundred years, it was only from 6 AD that a Roman governor resided there in Caesarea. Caesar Augustus, the first emperor, had died in AD 14, and his successor was the ruthless Tiberius. And Luke wants us to know this. And Herod's sons who had taken over were regarded as ruling by fear and oppression. This was not a good time to be living in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Israel. This was not a good time. And for hundreds of years there was no prophetic inspiration or challenge. And they were looking for some continuance of the prophetic. And John the Baptist appears on the scene to speak into this. And John the Baptist um, says what Jesus starts his ministry with. This, repent, repent. Now Luke, interestingly, uses the word repent more than any of the other gospel writers. In fact, John never mentions it at all. And there's also a lot of talk when you see about the fruit of repentance. Luke talks a lot about this fruit and the tree and the axe coming to the tree and cutting down the tree and in fact before very long we find ourselves not very far away from where Hosea was living some of the things that are going on among the people of God and then John demands this fruit of repentance repentance when I was growing up it was a a turning around you're going in a direction and you turn your life around completely in the opposite direction and go the other way. And that, in some ways, is not wrong. But in some ways, like much of the scriptures, we tend to have confined it and constrained it into some sort of personal idea of repentance. Maybe when I say the word repentance, you think, well, what that means is you stop going to the pub and the betting shop and you go to the midweek instead. And in some ways, we've almost narrowed it down to that. Now, you've got to say what you don't say as well as what you do say. So Stockman didn't say go to the betting shop and the pub instead of the midweek. That's not what I'm saying. But that's almost what we've narrowed it down to kind of, well, you don't smoke and you don't drink and you don't swear. That's repentance. And instead of doing those things, go to an extra, go to church twice on a Sunday and a midweek if you can get one. It's almost also a human work. Once you repent once it's a one moment thing then somehow you would get God's love or grace that's almost a human working your way into salvation is it not I think it's much bigger than that not that you take away the individual not that you take away those things but it's a much much bigger thing than that I read one book a few years ago where it talks about it as a reversal of history John has come on the scene and he said, the world is going in this direction and we want to reverse history. We want to take history from the way it's going and we want to make the entire world different. Tom Wright uses the word, a counter agenda of the kingdom. 
repentance is a counter agenda of the kingdom. Because other people as well as John the Baptist and Jesus used this word. Josephus were told in AD 70 with no religious baggage. Told the people to repent and believe. So it wasn't a pietistical spiritual phrase this. And what he meant by repenting and believing was not going with the way of the nationalist way that the culture, the society was going, but to actually reverse history. To have a counter agenda where we live in a completely different value system than the one we're living in. Where we actually set that up. So there is that wee bit too where it's relationship with grace in Northern Ireland comes in. First of all, I think it's bigger than just stopping going to the bedding shop and the pub and going to church. Although, don't take away the individual. If you want to change a soccer culture, it seems a very difficult one when not only are the fans screaming abuse onto the pitch, but players are screaming abuse at each other on the pitch, and then the managers are screaming abuse at people and won't shake hands even at that level of soccer. If you wanted to change the culture of that, you could come in with all these strategies and you could come in with all these ways that you could get people to do things differently. But at the bottom line, to change the universal, you've got to start with yourself. There's no point in going and behaving the same way as a society with some agenda to change that society. So as well as it being for the entire society, we do have to, in some level, start with ourselves. And that relationship with grace, and that's not where I want to get to today, it seems to me as if wrestled with it and wrestled with some of you on Facebook, does repentance come and then grace, or does grace come and then repentance? It seems to me that there could be a sort of a, a blend and blur, a, a reflex action. When a swimmer in the Olympic final hits the wall to turn to come back the other way, as they hit the wall, they're swimming. And the two things kind of happen at once. I don't believe we can repent without God's grace interrupting our lives to cause us to do that. I don't believe that repentance brings us to grace. But I believe they go together. I believe you can't have the grace without the repentance. And certainly repentance isn't going to bring you grace. As I say, that could be a human thing. They work together. But what's the fruit of this? Well, if we look at what... um, John the Baptist says to start with and then work our way through. Um, John the Baptist responds to the people who ask him that very question. In verse 8 he says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So immediately people are going, Oh, right, cut down and thrown into the fire. Don't want to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Need to ask this guy a few questions. So it says, What should we do then? The crowd asks. And John answers, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. So God's judgment is coming. Almost like a tsunami is about to hit the coast. And John's out there saying, you've got to change the way you're going to live. What are we going to do first? Well, the first thing John tells us to do is to look after the poor. And that comes up again and again. And again, the whole way through Luke's gospel. And then even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Well, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Seems pretty obvious to me, but maybe we need to be told the pretty obvious. Honesty, when it comes to business dealings. Not trying to get something for yourself. 
Then some soldiers came and asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't exhort, extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And do you notice something in those three things that Luke records in the response to repent? They all have to do with how we use and how we acquire our money. Every one of them has to do with finance and wealth. And again, I don't know about you, but the whole way through this gospel this week, it's been about possessions, it's been about wealth, it's about not being able to worship God in money, it's about what we do with money, it's about what you do when your master gives you some money. Right the way through the gospels, when it comes to this idea of repentance, our finances and our wealth is first in line. We used to have a group of, um, I'm not sure what we would have called ourselves, that used to meet in my Janice in my front room every Thursday night for a few years in the mid-90s. and um, I suppose many of us were a bit disillusioned with how things were in churches and we were finding certain freedoms and all kinds of other stuff. And I can never forget one of the guys one night just saying, you know, we're told off because we do certain things, but actually those who are telling us off are not using their wealth anything like the way God tells them to use their wealth. But it's sort of more respectable to be wealthy and get away with that than if we go down Lavery's for a night on Friday. And you know, it's a great commentary on what John's on about in Luke's gospel. Because it's those of us who have money in BT9 and around. It's those of us who have good jobs It's those of us who are in those situations with mortgages that this gospel speaks most to. How we deal with that as a counter agenda to how the world is dealing with it is there the whole way through the book. I want to just flick across to um, page 31 because of course we're on pages Um, And I'm half the time in pages and half the time in verses at the bottom. And I'm half the time in the computer and I don't know where I am most of the time. But this bit, as as Jesus talks about us not worrying about the clothes we wear or the food we eat. You know that passage. Well, let me read it. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what are about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor is dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, and do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows what you need. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you. Now here's a clue. If it's a counter agenda, what we get here is the pagan world runs after such things, And your father knows what you need. So there's a pagan world that's running after what? What drives us? When we get up in the morning, what do we want to achieve? When we get up in the morning, is what we want to achieve a bigger wage packet? 
Is it better stocks and shares at the end of the week? Or the end of the year? Or whatever else? Is that what we're strategizing about? Is that what we spend our time talking about? Are those the things that are most important to us? This passage and this gospel and this kingdom of Christianity would say to us very clearly, we need a counter agenda to this because the world is greedy and anxious and there's feelings of audacious injustice all around the place because of the bad way that a pagan world seeks after these things. Why do we work? Promotion? Bigger wedge packet? Better house? Better car? Extra holiday? Interestingly, if we go down this passage in page 31, if you want to take it home and think about it a little bit afterwards, it says in one place, be ready, be dressed ready for service. It moves from this acquiring wealth pagan world into a counter agenda that actually is about serving other people. It's not about what we can get for ourselves. It's about what we can do for others. If you have two coats, give it to the poor. We're back to chapter three again. Don't exhort or extort money. Don't. What we're seeing here is that our dynamic, the dynamic of the counter agenda, is for other people. The poor in that verse. Maybe the enemy, culturally, in another verse. Uh, John, or Luke chapter 6, not sure what page it's on, where we love our enemies no matter what they do to us. The way we relate to other people is the agenda of the kingdom. So it made me start thinking. It'd be crazy thoughts. I know a few years ago they said that you need £88,000 to bring up two kids if you wanted two holidays, two cars, a mortgage, and all the gadgets. So is that what we go for? Or what if, what if we had a counter agenda? What if the reason that we lived and the reason we had a bank account was so that one of the poorest health areas in Belfast, a few hundred yards from us, wasn't that anymore? Or that the marginalized in our communities weren't sleeping rough last night? Or that the people who are in debt might find them their way out of debt at some kind of level. What if we started living serving for the kingdom, the counter agenda, bringing justice, shalom, and peace? How would that affect our work? Maybe we would say, right, we can put more money aside to do some of that stuff and take some money out of the agenda that our society has put on us and placed on us very clearly. There was that period, uh, sorry if it, uh, it's not easy to talk about these things, but there was that period where everybody needed that kind of hot tub in the garden. Everybody was getting a hot tub because everybody had everything. So what are we going to get next? Well, we need to spend money. We'll, we'll say hot tub. So everybody suddenly was out getting a hot tub. I didn't really fancy sitting in a hot tub with some of the people that were sitting in hot tubs or going to invite me to sit in hot tubs. But it was just that society says, this is the next thing we need, so we better get it. Counter agenda. What is the counter agenda? Society says that we should bless the poor. Oh, now that would be a crazy idea because you know what the poor do with the money they buy. What if we, or what if we decided, actually, I could live with less money. So I'll go part-time 
And I will give the other part time to some of the stuff that could do with being done around this area that our church is in or the area that I live in. What if the driving force every morning we get up was serving other people rather than looking after ourselves? What if we were seeking the kingdom first, believing that all those things could be added unto us? What if? Is this what this money thing's about? How do we make our decisions? How do we decide what to go for next? The young ruler, the rich young ruler, of course, on page 40, he just can't give up this stuff. He can keep all the laws. But he just can't share his wealth. He just can't do it. So where are we? That seems a little bit of a challenge, but I think it's there. Three of the themes that come out for me as I close were these this week. There's an incredible sense as we read through this gospel in a a panoramic view rather than in the minutiae of it, of this kingdom agenda. How people are humble. Don't go for the biggest places at the table. Go for the lower places at the table. Don't pray in street corners or pray long prayers or do all those kinds of things to be seen. But instead of that, put others better. It's right there. It weaves its way right through the entire gospel. Be ready to serve. Service. Jesus is always serving other people. He's given his time for other people. Even when he goes off for his little holiday or break or time of prayer and people arrive, he has time for them. It's all for him about other people, about service. It's all about humility. It's all about the kingdom. It's all about others first. So what about the fruit of our repentance? Is it continuous? Is it being revealed? Is it really impinging on the tough things that we do? Like how we deal with our finances, our careers, and our time? Are we really living a counter agenda to the people here at the golf club this morning, or the yacht club, or another club? And is that counter agenda working its way out across the peace walls of Belfast, or in the poorer parts of our city near hand? Is our repentance bearing the fruit of a city that is completely and utterly different because so many people have met to worship God this morning and committed themselves to that counter agenda? Took a wee break last night from sermon preparation. Went to a concert and... uh, there's a song that I keep going back to that was sung at that concert. And it's probably a song that is about a loved one. But it could be about the world we live in. I want to be someone that makes you feel beautiful. I want to be someone that covers you in love. And as I'm preparing today, thinking of this dress to serve, this humility, this counter agenda, 
As I was listening to that last night as a commitment or as a prayer, as a passionate desire or ambition, I couldn't help but in the chorus of that song see a selflessness. It's not about me. It's about being someone that makes you feel beautiful. It's about me investing my life in things that cover you in love. It's the counter agenda. Where we are no longer the focus of the drives of our ambitions. But we are. And those outside the walls are. Because we no longer live for us. We want to be someone that makes others feel beautiful and covered in love. Let's be quiet for a moment. And just in the quiet, consider what are the driving forces of our lives? What fuels our day? What are our desires and our values? When it comes to our time, how much do we want to give that other people might know that they're beautiful? That other people might be covered in love? Is the reason that we do our job if we're at work so that other people might feel beautiful? So that other people might be covered in love? And the way we wrestle with our finances in BT9 do we wrestle with them so that other people might know that they're beautiful and that other people might be covered in love Lord help us to ask ourselves today are these the fruit of repentance and where is our everyday repentance and are we living a counter agenda that turns history around so that the city of Belfast will know something's going on because those people live in such a radically different way Lord, send your spirit to purify us. We pray that you would help us and give us courage to do what the world might think is crazy. Because as we've read through your gospel this week, the world must have thought you were crazy. And you ask us to follow you. Help us to do so. In Jesus' name. Amen.